Legal discussion on Tip Today is brought to you in association with Lynch Solicitors Clan Mail on the web at lynchsolicitors.ie and at divorceinireland.com. John Lynch from Lynch Solicitors joins me now. Good morning to you, John. Good morning, Fran. And uh, good to see you this morning. Uh, we're going to talk about the general principles uh, that people should keep in mind when making a claim. But if you don't mind, uh, John, yeah. before we go to that, mm. Could you have a quick word with me about um, legitimate claims? Because it's almost sort of, there's a bad smell almost now uh, around yeah. people making any kind of a claim because of recent uh, publicity and stuff. Yeah. It's, it's an important point to make, isn't it? It is, yeah. And it's, it's actually a starting point when a client comes into you. The very first thing that an awful lot of people kind of have to consider is will I or will I not make the claim? I mean, and funnily enough, it's often a question that comes up for discussion with the client in circumstances where, you know, people are uncomfortable making claims and they do, as you say, and have been kind of put into a kind of a category of, if you like, undeserving claimants. And this has been a very effective kind of you know, policy kind of decision by insurance companies where they're trying to create this impression that there's a large quantity of claimants out there who are, you know, just doing it just because, you know, in fact, some of them fraudulent claimants. And, I mean, the first, I mean, people don't take cases lightly. By and large, people will take cases where they consider, first of all, that they're entitled to take the case. In other words, that, you know, there's a legal liability there on the part of the person against whom they're making the claim. Secondly, and that's what they often come in to us about, obviously, you know, is there there something here that's covered by the the law of, which is what we were were going to talk about, the whole law of tort, or torts, depending which way you look at it. But people often do give a lot of consideration to, to whether they should or whether they shouldn't. And what is often the kind of tilting factor, if you like, is the injury. In Mm. other words, if people have significant injuries that are going to affect their livelihood, going to affect their quality of life, in those circumstances, people, by and large, will make claims. And by the way, there are a large percentage of people who don't make claims, despite the fact that it's clearly the case that they have suffered an injury and that the injury could be compensated on the legal system. But I think it's a bit, you know, it's quite unfair this whole kind of, you know, kind of mm. mark that's been put on claimants. Yes, you know, and that we're we a do, culture of... Well, uh, but we do as a society, and I don't, don't want to get into too many kind of social arguments on it, but I mean, we do as a, as a society take the view, you know, that, you know, we have insurance, we, we take out insurance to cover certain risks, but if you were to take the view that people shouldn't be making claims at all, one would have to ask the question, why would you have insurance? And why then are insurance companies, you know, making uh, substantial profits off the back of insurable risks if we're going to turn around and say, no, there shouldn't be any? Because, you know, as a society, we can decide, for, for example, which they've done in, in Australia, you can have a no-fault system. In other words, in Australia, they made the decision um, political decision some time back and they said we'll have this no fault system and effectively if somebody has a claim they make the claim we assess the compensation we don't look into whether right or wrong or otherwise and that was their way of dealing with that situation but I think it's it's to say that people who take claims you know they're obviously there are always mm. 
a very small minority of people who will abuse any system mm. irrespective of what it is. But, you know, the large majority of claimants who make claims have legitimate have a legitimate basis for making that claim. Yeah, and I often feel sorry for people, particularly where whiplash is concerned, because if somebody is seen to be, even, even if they're not making a claim, if they seem to be wearing a neck brace, for example, right. oh, there's a compensation. Right. You, you know, so there is that yeah. attitude out there now uh, at the moment as well. But the general principles then when making a claim, John. Well, yeah, because that kind of interestingly flows from the very question that you're asking, you know, are, do people give a lot of consideration, which I'm reframing your question, do people give a lot of consideration before they make a claim? And the answer is yes, quite a lot. And I often think that if people who are defending claims appreciate the fact that some of the factors that will influence somebody making a claim are whether or not the defendant is any, is in any way sympathetic to the plaintiff. You know that's an interesting phenomenon that I have observed over the years. That to a certain extent, you know, people's total and utter lack of, if you like, respect for the fact that somebody has been injured mm. can lead to a certain attitude by by certain plaintiffs. If you know what I mean. But if you look at the the law that you're talking about here. The general law is the law of negligence, which is a subcategory of a, a broader f- law which talks about the law of torts. Now, the law of torts, they debated for years whether they called it the law of tort or the law of torts because there were so many of them. Mm. But I mean, there is a, I was looking at it this morning, there is such a long list of the types of claims that can be made in under this general umbrella of kind of a duty of care that somebody owes to somebody else. And if you look at some of the, the, the ones that we kind of would commonly hear about, you know, trespass, you know, if some there's trespass to the person and there's trespass to land, that's a law uh, that's covered by the law of torts. You have nuisance, you know, the fact that somebody would maintain a nuisance that would, would impact on a neighbour or something like that. And then you have the old one, Rylands versus Fletcher, which is very well known to almost anybody who ever studies law because it's very hard to to kind of forget that kind of name, Rylands and Fletcher. And Rylands and Fletcher is basically where somebody has something on their land and it escapes onto their neighbouring land. And the classic one of that is, uh, in that case, if if I'm not mistaken, it was a, a fellow with a huge amount of water and it spilled onto his neighbour's land. And that, But you have a whole load of other ones as well that we know. For example, defamation. You have, you know, interesting ones like malicious prosecution, which I saw came up there recently. Malicious prosecution? Malicious prosecution. Uh, there was a case involving someone... Well, the classic one is our friends in... in um, Donegal. Do you remember the case involving the superintendent? I do indeed. In Donegal. Well, yes. I mean, that's a malicious prosecution, and that was proven to be a malicious prosecution. Mm. So you can have situa- situations like that. Abusive process is another one. So it's somebody just using the system uh, against an individual, and you can take a case on that. You've got the other ones, you know, fire, yeah, animals, liability for fire and animals, and things like that. But all of them have a kind of a general kind of rules that you look at so if the client comes in and says uh, that they you know they think that they're you know one that often comes up or often that you might mightn't often think about you know is where somebody interferes with your commercial 
uh, well-being, if you know what I mean. So if you're a business person and somebody goes off and they take take your, let's say, your branding, a particular thing, and you sell it, and they go off and sell it in their shop, or they take your name and they use a similar kind of name, they're all covered within this system that we're talking about, which is the law of charts. But this is like a whip. Uh, you know, I was going to say a whiplash tour, but it's like a, a very fast tour of the law that you might study over a period of about 12 months. But one of the basic things that when somebody comes into you and they say, well, look, do I have a case? You have to start by asking, is there a duty by the person against whom you have the complaint to have, do they have a duty towards you? So in other words, do they have a duty of care? So... If they don't have a duty of care, in other words, if they have no responsibility in the circumstances, well, then there is no case. So you have to adjudicate that, then, you basically, when, make, when, when somebody you comes You have to you. make an assessment when somebody comes in as to whether or not there is what we call a cause of action. I mean, I remember when I started first, I used to be so excited that somebody would come in and actually ask me questions because I was just newly qualified. And I said, this is great. And you'd almost instinctively just, because you'd be very simple you're always sympathetic obviously mm. to the client and you're always sympathetic as somebody a colleague used to always say all my clients are swans but I mean not all clients are swans and right. not all cases are cases and not all actions can be taken and it's a bit late to find that out at the end of the case if you know what I mean that when you've run something for two years or something and you go into a court of law and then turn around to the client and say well actually you don't have a case here a bit late to be making that decision at that point in time but if you are going to decide whether you have you have to run through these checks as a lawyer well you should run through the checks as a lawyer let's put it that way so the first thing you have to find out is you know is there a duty of care and that kind of comes back to do you remember I, I have on occasion talked to you about a case called Donoghue and Stevenson so when I started studying law first you look at the case of Donoghue and Stevenson Donoghue and Stevenson it was in around 1918 or 1917 and it was a case in the north of England. Actually, it wasn't in the north of England, it was in Scotland, which is in the north of England. But anyway... <laughs> that was, there was a big like debate. To, I would like to say that to the Scots, <laughs> but anyway... But it was a little girl who went in to buy a soda drink, and when she went in to buy the soda drink, there was a snail in the soda drink. So the question was that under the law, as it then was, unless there was a contractual relationship, so in other words, there was a legal connection between the little girl or the person who bought it for her, obviously, and... The, the the people who made the drink, you couldn't take a case because, again, I won't go into the nitty-gritty of that. But that, from that grew up this whole principle of the neighbour principle and the principle of, of negligence and, you know, a duty of care. Mm. So out of that came the principle. So the, it was, I think it was Lord Reader, anyway, it doesn't matter who it was, but the particular law uh, judge, uh, in you know, started and created this whole concept of the neighbour principle. Now, so you first of all have to decide, is there a liability? Now, in nine times out of ten, most of the cases that will come into you uh, will be fairly uh, easy to identify mm. that there is a duty of care. You know, I mean, obviously, if you go out on the road, you're driving your car, you know, you have a duty of care to everybody else on the road and they have a duty of care to you. So that's a relatively straightforward one. If you're an employee, you have a duty of care as an employer to the employee and that's a fairly fairly kind of common garden type one. You know, if you're walking down the street and you, you trip on the footpath and there's a trip hazard there, there's a duty of care 
by the local authority. So the first thing then that you look at, and funny, you know, as I was saying to you jokingly at the start, when I initially used to take instructions, I used to be very, you know, focused on taking all the details of the accident or whatever. But I built in very quickly into my, my practice the concept of is there a prima facie case? So in other words, when I look at it, do I think as a lawyer applying legal principles to this and a little bit of experience, well, hopefully a little bit more experience now than then, but experience and a little bit of common sense kind of poured on top of that. Is there, you know, is there a, a, a case to be made here and can it be? Now, the fact that I may think there's a case mm. to be made doesn't mean that you'll get there, mm. if you know what I mean. But it's an initial assessment. My, my only problem with a lot of it in, in recent years is that there there seems to be no grounds for stupidity. <laughs> you know, and and I I have to say in my own case, for example, mm. I was in a certain shopping centre. They beautifully put up a sign to say the floor was slippy. I fell over the sign. <laughs> Do you know? And that was my stupidity because yes, yes. I was daydreaming. Yeah. Does that come into it at all? Just it does, sheer stupidity. It does because, well, it does. Of course, it does because you see, you you have to, there are kind of five kind of basic tests that I will apply. The first one is there a duty of care? Well, yes. If the water, if the floor is slippy, you, you there is a duty of care on the part of the supermarket to warn people. Yeah, the next one, is there a breach of the duty of care? Well, in that particular case, good example that you've given me, is there a breach where they've put up the sign? More than likely, no, because mm. the sign is up there to warn you, and if it's an adequate sign, they have the duty. Is there a breach? No, there's not. If there's no sign there, you could argue that there's a breach. Yes, now, yeah. you, you mightn't argue. It may not be 100% correct to argue it, or you can't be guaranteed but like if you take the case that you're talking about and you came into me with that and you f- said to me that well there was a sign there because that's what I would be asking you you know mm. why did you fall yeah it was one of these water? yellow sort yeah, of yellow, signs yeah. you know the ones you uh, with the fellow falling over yeah and you fell over <laughs> I fell over him yes <laughs> okay. I know but I mean would the judge ever say listen you know I mean, oh, yeah. you were strolling through the thing and you fell and it was oh. your own fault go home would, would, would that ever Absolutely. What is yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, and to a certain extent, as you were saying earlier when you were asking a question about claimants, to a certain extent, that's what will sometimes happen is that people will start saying, well, how did that get to court? Mm. Well, the straight answer that I would have to say to you is if I took your case on and didn't do a case assessment and didn't tell you I didn't think you had a case, well, then if that gets to court to a certain extent, you'd have to ask the question, why did, it, why did you bring it, number right. one, and why did I ask? Well, funnily, you know, it's interesting that you bring it up because not that too far distant that when we had this very discussion about a lady on a swing, if you know, mm. if you remember, mm. and the very same questions would come up there. And the question that that you'd have to ask yourself there is that if somebody comes into you and gives you a set of circumstances that sets out the case. It sets out how it happened. And if you're the lawyer, you kind of have to ask yourself, did you do a risk assessment of the case when you took on the instructions? But maybe, just maybe, we shouldn't really <laughs> say <laughs> Even that. if that were a minister's... Yeah, no, but let's not, let's not go there. Correct. All right, will you hang on with me, John, because yeah. I want to take a break. Back in a moment. 
Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. And uh, welcome back. John Lynch from Lynch Solicitors still with me in studio. And we're talking about, I suppose, the decision whether or not to, to make a claim and indeed yeah. uh, the kind of advice you'd be giving where that is uh, concerned. You're going to continue with that? Yeah, John? well, I mean, if you look at it, is there a duty, number one? Number two, is there a breach of the duty? So that's a f- the certain second one is a matter of fact. You know, is there is there not a breach? And if you go back to your sign scenario, go back to your floor sign, and you know, and go back to the swing as well. To be fair to the swingers uh, that we're talking about, but if you look at a situation, an awful lot of because it's fact based. The issue there is, if you come into me, now you've quite uh, straightforwardly said to me, well, you know, there was a sign there and I fell over the sign. But if you don't tell me there's a sign there, that that is an issue that could fall into difficulty because sometimes you can get a situation where somebody's recollection of what happened mm. and the sign is a very obvious one. You'd have to kind of ask yourself how you couldn't remember you fell over the sign. But, you know, there are situations where people's recollection of an accident aren't often very clear and cases can get really, really convoluted, I would say, sometimes in terms of trying to get to the root of how did you fall? Did you trip or did you slip? Or was there water? Was there not water? Because unfortunately, from my experience in that situation, most people's instinctive reaction when they fall is to literally get up as fast as they can and get the hell out of there. From an embarrassment point of view. Yeah, they're so embarrassed they get out of there. So for you to ask them, what did you fall on? Was the floor slippy, etc.? is often quite difficult. But that's just back to your your, your Mm. case. I'm just wondering about that, though. If they don't give you all of the information and and you go to court and then CCTV uh, proves that it was a different story or whatsoever, Mm. people need to be very careful because the bills are clocking up here, aren't they? Correct, correct. But the interesting thing about that is that Bill Tintani, uh, I was going to say good, I shouldn't say good, uh, Bill Tintani, well thought out, planned, whatever, that's another way of saying good, but in, in any procedure where you're looking at it, you know, if if you're taking on a case, there are certain elements to it that you've got to put together. One of them is discovery, one of them is CCTV, another one is eyewitnesses. Another one is social media. Actually, you know, it's funny, we had this conversation, I had this conversation with somebody the other day, that I mean, social media has become so whatever, an an epidemic in terms of evidence now that, you know, to ignore it, you'd be ignoring it at your peril because, Mm. you know, you know, the classic case of somebody out of work saying that they're ill, etc., etc., and suddenly Facebook stroke, whatever the other mediums are that you're talking about, they appear on it and then bang, you're into all sorts of... And they're admissible. They're admissible, yeah, and have been admitted. In fact, you're now getting to the point where you're actually even able to serve paperwork, legal paperwork, through the medium of social, through the social medium, so through Facebook or whatever. Wow. So when you can't serve any other way, you get them by social media, as in you get your court documents served by social media. But I mean, duty of care, breach of duty of care, you know, it's a fact whether you breached or whether you didn't. And in the breach is often where the really interesting part of it is, you know, 
how do you prove that there's a breach? And if we stay with your floor cleaning scenario, I mean, that's always a difficult one. But I mean, there should be a system of cleaning within the supermarket. There should, it should be done, done in a timely fashion. There should be monitoring. There should be warnings, you know, all those kind of things. They're the factual kind of makeup of whether or not there is or is not a breach. So if you have a situation that you're in a factory floor, for example, and you're in a meat factory and somebody, I always remember a case uh, that I was involved in quite a number of years ago. And I remember at the time, I was a brave guy at the time. I used to go for thinking, you know, you know, you, you know there is a duty of care and there is a breach. And it comes down to factual proof before the court, is there a breach of duty? And is the court satisfied that there is a breach of duty? In that particular case, if my memory serves me correctly, the guy got nicked just in the wrist he I'm pointing at you now but you just can't see you but just below the the hand at the wrist mm. he got nipped and normally you would wear, wear gloves you see and the one of the basic principles of any case or one of the other elements of it is that there isn't a defence available to the other party because obviously even if you have a a duty of care even if you breach the duty of care you might have a defence to it Mm. and sometimes that defence comes in the form of saying well actually there wasn't really a breach here, it might look like a breach but there wasn't really a breach and in the particular one that that I was thinking about I, I had an engineer who it was quite uh, unique and so far, not unique, but he was unusual at the time in that he was big into academia. He had studied in America, etc. Studied internationally, and you know, and he, one of the kind of principles was that if you're going to accuse a, an employer, for example, in this instance of a breach, you have to, you know, it's not a matter for the employer to, if you like cover every eventuality in other words he's the employer is not an insurer so you can't just simply ask him to cover every risk there must be a certain commercial reality Mm. in covering the risk because after all let's say take the instance that i was talking about what the employer said in that case was we have the gloves that are recommended by british standards these gloves are perfect we've Mm. been using them for youngs and it was just a just an accident that he just happened to be unlucky that his wrist was just not covered like they have they just had a, at that time yeah they had a jacket a t- sleeved jacket males which and he just got caught if you like in the gap now so therefore their defense if you like to the duty of care which was there to the breach which was there their defense was okay but that's too high a standard we mm. we couldn't economically commercially cover that and, risk. and how did that turn out how it turned out was that our engineer found a glove which was being used in America and on the continent, which was relatively inexpensive, which was the same cost as the glove they were using, which would have literally covered the gap and dropped down into the sleeve and you had 100% cover. So in those circumstances, their defense of, well, you know, we we didn't breach this duty was out the gap because the court decided, no, you could have quite easily covered the risk by simply replacing the gloves with, with these more effective gloves. It's a very high standard, isn't it? 
Well, the argument in that particular... Well, you see, that was the argument. That yeah. The argument by the, insur- by the employer was that's a very high standard. But, you see, if you can... The argument was, our argument was, that if at the same or no additional cost, you could cover what's a foreseeable... And this is right. the interesting thing as well, you see. Foreseeability comes into all of these things. And just somebody being unlucky. Is that... You know, I mean... Is, is that Where does the unlook fall? Yeah, you know, does yeah. it fall with the plaintiff or does it fall with the employer? Because the argument here was, and I've, I'm re-arguing the case with you, <laughs> but the argument here was, where should the risk fall? Should it fall with the plaintiff? The innocent plaintiff, if you like, mm. that wasn't going to nick himself. If of course, right. yeah. Or where does it fall? I, I presume that where cases are concerned, the, the big ones and the most complex have to be the medical ones. Yeah. Medical, medical negligence, yes. And I mean, the, in medical negligence, it's the standard of care that you're looking at there. Do you know what I mean? What standard do you apply? So when you're talking about your duty of care, obviously your duty of care has to be to a certain standard. When you look at medical negligence, the duty of care or the standard that's applied, if you like, you could call it the gold standard in that it's been around for quite a long time now, is done the done, what, the, what we call the done principles. And you see, when when you look at your case law, when you're studying your case law in any particular area of law, you've got to look to see what standard is applied in that area. And when you look at medical negligence, the medical negligence standard is, it's the standard of a comparable expert in the same area of law or medicine in this instance because don't forget that you know medical negligence is only one branch of professional negligence you can have a standard that would apply to a solicitor to a doctor to an accountant you know to any professional there is a standard and the standard that generally speaking that you judge them against is the standard when you compare say, Dr. A or Solicitor A to Solicitor B, C, D, E, F, G and every other one around, are they consistent with the general standard that's applied across the board? So that's that's your thing. But funny... And, and sorry, is that, yeah. sta- are you, is that international? That's, well, that's the Irish standard, but it's consistent across the common, what we call the common law right. countries. I'm just so wondering you what you would look Australia. to as the gold standard. Would, would, is that an international? Well, the gold, the gold in terms, oh yes, I understand what you're asking me, sorry. The gold standard is you would look to your colleagues within your particular speciality. So if it's in obstetrics, if it's in, you know. Gynecology in, or whatever, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You look to the standard within the profession. So that's where the argument is yeah, as to what is the standard standard, you know, absolutely what is the standard? And second of all, did you apply that standard? Now, there are, there, there is the other kind of sub-rules to that, which is that even if there is a standard out there, if it's blatantly incorrect, if the standard is flawed, in other words, if when you look at it, it's actually flawed, the court, the judiciary retain a discretion to say, well, actually, there is still a breach here, because although it's consistent with the standards... Right. Finally, if I could, ask you to defend your profession. Again. (laughs) Again. Because uh, you know what's out there, John. I mean, uh, the point has been made all the time that, Mm. you know, solicitors are driving this along because there's so Mm. much money to be made Mm. uh, out of it and Mm. uh, they're ambulance chasing and all sorts of things. Yes, yes. Discuss, as they say. Well, yeah. But, I mean, you can say that of any 
profession, you know, that, I mean, it is, it's without, without doubt, you'd have to accept the fact that I am somewhat, what, you know, my views are coloured by the fact that I'm a lawyer. So obviously it is my livelihood. But at the same time, you know, the reason that a lot of, well, sorry, I'll reframe that. The reason that I did law and the reason I do law is that I, I have a, a very strong belief that people have rights that are that they're entitled to have respected. I believe that if somebody is involved, let's say, I mean, you know, the common garden accident scenario, that if they are in an accident, that they do have a choice. And their choice is, do I or do I not, you know, make a claim? And if the law says they're entitled to make a claim, and if it's a matter for the law to adjudicate as to whether that claim has a, a merit or not, and if it's a, law, a matter for the law to adjudicate whether or not there's any value in that claim, that's a matter for the legal system, it's a matter for the judiciary. I don't think you should pin it on the particular mm-hmm. individual. And I think the fact of the matter is that if... if we're kind of getting to a situation where we're saying, saying to ourselves that people shouldn't make claims. Where do you stop that where, mm. and how do you assess it if you're then going to say, well, it's not a matter for the judiciary to assess it? Because after all, it is the job of the judiciary to decide whether or not your claim falling over your marker in the supermarket, whether that it has or has not got value. And the reality of that is it is their job to do that. My job as a solicitor, is that if somebody comes into me and I look at it and I say, yes, there is a basis in law for this claim, it's not my responsibility to make the moral decision or the personal decision whether somebody does or does not take that claim. And there is many a person that comes and has come into me over the years who simply comes in to ask the question, do I have any basis to make this claim, I, you know, if if I decide to make it, and quite a number of people don't make the claim because they say, sure. "Well, it's a minor injury, I'm okay, yeah. and I don't." You it, know, isn't it interesting that the marketing of the insurance companies now um, almost a brand every claim is fraudulent, and yes. and every solicitor as as an ambulance Correct. chaser. Correct, and well, I mean, is that that's hardly surprising? Yeah, and I don't think I would be uh, unfair to suggest that insurance companies are not motivated by your entitlement to make a claim. They're motivated by their entitlement to make a profit. And uh, I think, to a certain extent, I would rest my case on that particular point. All all right. Uh, John, always a pleasure. Thanks very much, indeed, for coming in to us. That's John Lynch from Lynch Solicitors in Clonmel.